This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Welcome to Mysterious Universe, Season 28, Episode 23. Coming up on this show, we've got Mescaline and the Dream Machine, the DMT Wonder Spheres, and the real-life lawnmower man of 1959. I'm Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. It sounds like uh, we've got some interesting stuff coming up in this episode, a little bit uh, hallucinogenic style. Do you remember that film? Great film. Did you, why, Kino. Why, though, did I... I read something about the lawnmower man today. Maybe we're reading the same article. Really? What does it come up? Why does well, the lawnmower man it, show It's from a guy who took LSD in 1959, but it's coming up as part of my segment today where I'm going to be talking about the, the flicker effect, the effect of... Um, what's it called? Stroboscopic light? Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. Isn't that like the uh, the Lucia light that was described by Anthony Peake? That's what I've been trying to remember all day, the <laughs> bloody Lucia light. Oh, I've been racking my brain. I'm the one with a bad memory. How do I recall that? <laughs> yeah. So the Lucia light was this invention and it's installed in therapy offices all around the world. There was one in Sydney, I think, at one yeah. point, but I think they, they moved it. Maybe it went to Byron Bay. It's very expensive. I really wanted to buy one when we first discovered it, when yeah. we first heard about it. But it, it was but insanely like cost 25 grand or something mm. for a lamp. Uh, but basically, you sit in front of this lamp, close your eyes, and then it starts strobing pulses of light at you. And it was intriguing because the experience reports from people that used it were really like a, a hallucinogen, hallucinogenic experience. Yeah, it's kind of like that idea of digital drugs. You know, it's like you can download uh, MP3, stereo MP3 tracks, for example, that put different <laughs> frequencies into different ears or, you know, each ear, and then it causes you to have a drug-like experience. I've tried it. It doesn't work. Oh, you tried it? I've tried it. It doesn't Where? do anything. You just download them from online. Oh, I thought you were talking about the Oh, Luc- not the Lucia. the Lucia. No, but I wonder if it's coming from an optical perspective, if it's got a far greater potential to it. I mean, Anthony Peake raved about it when we had him on the show years ago. Well, I'm going to be going into the Chapel of Extreme Experience from, uh, what's his name again? Uh, John Geiger. Oh, he's the guy that wrote The Third Man Effect. That's right. And I was looking for other books he had written today and I came across The Angel Effect. And I was like, oh, I haven't done that one. And then I opened it up and it was full of highlights. And I realized (laughs) I already read it. Yes, we have done that one. (laughs) I already read it in 2016. But then I found this other book he he had written years ago. I think this is from the sometime in the 90s, one of his earlier books. And it's the true story of the discovery of flicker potentials. And this has been studied since the early 19th century of uh, the effect of light in a flickering, I guess, pattern on the retina. Is this the same kind of stuff that induces seizures and epileptics? Yes. 
Okay. It's like the whole uh, but, Japanese kids watching the Pokemon episode yeah. and they all you know, have seizures. It's that kind of thing. But uh, there's been all this research done for nearly 200 years on the effects this has and how it essentially puts you into altered states. And there's a story from 1959 when they started to do these experiments. And because of this time sp- this time period, uh, there weren't the draconian laws on psychedelic drugs. Yes, of course. There were many experiments where people would take like a mild... Uh, hallucinogen and you know they wouldn't have any wild experiences they wouldn't be hallucinating or anything they would just kind of feel a little a little bit drunk but then they would be put in front of one of these light machines that's pulsing lights at their eyes at a certain frequency and when they close their eyes this is what happened to this guy he turned into the lawnmower man he started to perceive a worldwide network or grid of electricity, how everything in the world in 1959 was connected, you know, with power lines and telephone lines and everything. He started to leave his body and sense this grid. And he started to become scared because he got this feeling, this kind of gut feeling that if he let this continue, he was going to merge with the power grid of the earth. Oh, that's fascinating. And essentially become the power grid. And so he he basically tells the you know the lab guys okay i've had enough turn off the machine turn off the machine and as they're walking over to turn it off he claims he starts getting sucked out of his body into the powerpoint in the side of the wall what <laughs> so he's like he's like lawn, lawnmower man he was about to become well i guess the 1959 version of the net he was about to be sucked into the matrix. Did it describe what psychedelic he'd taken? Because this is the kind of stuff... It was LSD. Oh, it was LSD, right. So this is similar to the kind of stuff that we're going to be going to, into in the Plus Extension, where I actually saw Graham Hancock uh, linked to this study that was only been recently released, which is the content of complex psychedelic experiences resulting from inhalation of DMT. Now, look, a very, very scientific kind of approach, but uh, it's actually a really fantastic article, and it inspired me to dig a little bit deeper and look at some of the sources and essentially what Stephen Kagan has done is kind of along the lines of like a uh, a literature review mm-hmm. in a way even though he's not looking at other journals but what he's done is he's gone and looked at a whole heap of uh, you know Erewid style websites uh, DMT websites you know the, a whole range of places where people report their experiences after taking DMT so it wasn't actually with participants, it was just a, no, like, almost like a meta study. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's a literature review. He's just collected a whole heap of studies, a whole heap of uh, you know anecdotal reports of anonymous sources, and then put them together because he's not trying to prove anything. He's just trying to look at it from you know the perspective of well, how many people report this type of incidents? Right. How many people experience this? He's trying to give us great content and some fun stories. Well, this is the thing. What's fascinating about it is that he doesn't really go into a lot of stories, but his source material does. And I ended up going through three hundred different DMT reports today and what? his story focuses on or his uh, study focuses on simply inhalation and the experiences 300 DMT reports 100 DMT reports uh, and I'll link to all of them in the show notes if you want to check them out for yourself no uh, no one wants to I, do that well this is the thing right so I mean I've uh, obviously the the idea of taking DMT for some people even the most you know um you know anti drug anti hallucinogen kind of people you hear some of these stories and they've got this appeal to them there's a real kind of like a, oh, I wonder just for a moment if I could see what that was like or what that feels like. But after reading these stories today, I'm like, no, 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 no. Never, never touch DMT. Don't go anywhere near it. Don't even think about it. Stay the hell away from it. It's just something that you don't want to experience because some of the stories I'm going to describe for you in the Plus Extension are just, they're beyond mind-boggling and they're beyond 
terrifying. Like they are complete. It's worse than what you hear about in shamanism. You know how you hear in shamanism about that ego death? Being dismantled. People being dismantled, being ripped from limb from limb and having this really positive effect. These stories don't have that. Like they've got people being torn apart, but it doesn't have a positive effect. And it almost feels like there's an element of like Stockholm syndrome in some of these cases of they keep on going back in to interact with these entities, but these entities are bad for them. But what's really fascinating about this is that it seems to be quite clear that unlike other drugs, because it does reference things like um, you know LSD and it does talk about uh, psilocybin in these cases I've looked into, DMT is just something completely different. It is people are going into a physicality. Like they're actually going to a place which is physical elsewhere. And this got me into looking into the idea of physicalism. So physicalism is kind of like the close cousin of materialism. And I'll get into that in the plus extension because it goes down this path of there may actually be other physical realities, but because we're so engulfed in physicalism, we can't comprehend that anything outside of this reality is real. Like anything outside of this reality may actually be real, but because we're so caught up in it, we just ignore it. So we'll go into those stories later on. I think our segments will cross over nicely, but where I started today was uh, in a completely different direction. And I'll explain how I ended up on this crazy uh, light strobing stuff. Uh, I saw this new book from Michael Tugius. Mm -hmm. Togius? Togius. Tugius, wouldn't it be? No, I'm I'm going with Togius. Let's go with that. It's called Extreme Survival. And uh, he's collected uh, not quite 300 stories, but he's got all these yeah, ex- extreme survival stories, um, people surviving shipwrecks, people uh, being stranded on mountains, uh, being abandoned in the desert. Uh, and essentially his approach is to look at the psychology of the people that made it and take See, out- they have an edge? Well, yeah, they always have an edge, but take out the, I guess, the lessons from how they survived and then- basically boil that down into things you can apply in your daily life. Uh, So I started to go into this and he begins with this story, this this sinking of a ship that occurred on October the 24th of 1982. It was a sailboat. It was called the Trashman. And it was sailing 60 miles off the coast of North Carolina. And this huge storm came in, like massive, massive storm, 100 mile per hour winds, uh, 40 foot waves. And it, it sinks this sailboat instantly. And it's, it sinks at about 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon. Now, the passengers on board were Brad, Deb, John, and Meg. They had 120 seconds to get off that boat. Wow. They, they didn't have a Two chance. Two they're out. They didn't have a chance to grab life jackets. It was just going down so rapidly they had to get off. Otherwise, they'd be dragged to the bottom of, bottom of the ocean. Now, as their boat sank... Uh, he tells the story of how essentially Mark tried to free this life raft from its canister um, and essentially uh, Brad, the other guy on board, was trying to untie this dinghy they've got called the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. And as Mark is freeing this life raft, eventually you pull the canister and it like self-inflates. But they're in 100 mile an hour winds. So as soon as he opens it... It's That's just gone. No, I laughed as well as soon as I read that. <laughs> just this this scene of being stuck in a storm and your only way out just whew, just flying away into the distance. And that's what happened. Uh, it, it was basically gone, completely disappeared. Yeah, it would act like a kite in those winds. Then the Zodiac, the dinghy, uh, came down and it was snatched by the wind as well and just started tumbling away. Now, Brad knew that if he didn't get it, that they were all going to die. They were done. So he starts swimming after it 
in this raging storm, you know, kicks off his boots as he goes. And somehow he catches up with it. He catches up with this little dinghy and he holds onto the lifeline of it. And essentially the rest of them swim up to him while he's holding onto it. Now they try and hold onto the outside of it, but these hurricane force winds and the sea levels just going crazy, just keep bowling it over and over again and everyone's being flipped over and they're trying to hang on to it. It and it was feels just futile, doesn't it? Absolute chaos. Now, they soon learned if they flipped it over, it was more stable and they could hang on to the cable around the side of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what they did. The dinghy stayed in place and they just hung on on the outside. Now, they do this for about an hour as the storm is still going, eventually getting slightly calmer. But still pretty bad. They're lucky that the water is relatively warm because you're likely to die from exposure. Well, it wasn't that warm because uh, John, the the captain of the trashman that had just sunk, he starts saying, look, we've got to turn it around. We've got to get inside. Uh, but Brad was certain if they turned it around still in this wind, it would flip over and toss everyone back into the water and they would lose it. So he shouted at John that the time wasn't right, but John was adamant. Now, he says, fortunately, Brad and Deb had another idea. It was an option no one had considered yet to get under it. So that's what they did. They ended up, you know, going under the water and coming up underneath the flip. Yeah, there's an air pocket in there. Yeah, into the air pocket of the flipped over dinghy. That way they could hold onto the lifeline, get out of the blasting wind. It worked. Now, before the ship had capsized, they had been in contact with the Coast Guard. Like, they saw that this storm was coming in. The Coast Guard actually sent out a C-130 aircraft to reach their location to see if they needed assistance. And drop um, dinghy, I'm assuming. Well, the the C-130 had a mechanical problem on the way mm-hmm. and it had to return. It had to return back to base. Now, the last thing the Coast Guard said was, we're sending two merchant ships out to you, but they're about two hours away. So con- keep in contact with us every hour. Now... That was the last contact they had with the Coast Guard because then, of course, they were flipped over and they were capsized. And another plane never came. The ships never came. No one came for these guys. How come? They well, couldn't find them? Apparently, and I didn't go into this, apparently uh, there was a lawsuit uh, that the survivors took up with the Coast Guard and it was settled out of court. Ah, oh, so the details um, are probably confidential then. I don't, I don't know what the details are, but it seems like someone screwed up because obviously they needed help. So four hours go by with this group just treading water and they're all shivering, hypothermia setting in. Uh, Meg, the, one of the women, has severe lacerations on her legs and oh. she's just bleeding into the water. Everyone's just obviously exhausted. And finally, when morning broke the next day, the wind had eased up up a bit. The, the sea wasn't as bad. Um, they were able to turn the raft around and some of them were reluctant to get in because the water felt warm compared to the air above, obviously. Like it was freezing above. But they immediately changed their minds when Mark looks down and he sees not one shark, but like two dozen sharks circling them below. Yeah, they've got to get out of the water. So immediately they all pull themselves into the craft. And it's tiny, this thing. It's like three foot by four foot. And they can see these fins circling the vessel. And Brad looks up as this kind of wave comes up past the past the dinghy. And he looks into the wave. And there's the biggest great white shark you've ever seen looking at him. <laughs> it's just he sees its eye looking at him. Like swimming at him? Well, it's just like swimming past them in that wave and he can see it in that moment. He makes eye contact with it. 
And he was like, what the hell is going on? Now, this little raft they're in, uh, it's still in huge jeopardy of being flipped over because the swell is so bad. So Brad is basically the balancer. He's stretching out, trying to keep it steady. But he's still afraid it's going to shift over and they're going to flip over into these shark-infested waters. So he's trying to think of some way to keep the group basically inside the raft. Um, but at this point, uh, you know, the Michael points out, the author, that basically Brad and Deb are the only ones that are thinking about their situation and how to improve it. Uh, the rest of them are just showing signs of defeat already. Um, the talk of water and thirst is just dominating the discussion. Um, and Brad tries to shut this out. He tells everyone, you know, we can't talk about this. He said, I couldn't go there. I had to put that one away. There was nothing I could do about the lack of water. And he's essentially Brad. This guy's consciously trying to direct his thoughts away from what's out of his control. He's yeah. only focusing on what he can control in this situation. And Michael says that very act of doing something helped keep him from dwelling on the pain and their situation. And it, it was essentially him just you know, reacting in the, the best way he could. So Brad's idea to keep this thing steady is to build like a makeshift anchor. So in this dinghy, there's like a little storage box made of wood. So he pulls it apart and gets the wood. And they've, they've got a large piece of wire in the dinghy for some reason. And he essentially attaches it all and makes like a, yeah, like an anchor. He thinks maybe that'll steady the raft. So he gets this thing. He throws the wood out into the ocean and it, it drops a little bit. And then immediately their whole dinghy is getting pulled, <laughs> like something's pulling it. By they shark? look over. It's that same shark that was giving them the evil eye in the wave. It's grabbed onto this thing and is pulling them through the waves. Like a scene, it's like out of Jaws. Now, it eventually lets go and uh, Mark is just pulling it in. And then the shark turns and starts to head for their dinghy straight at them. Now, Mark has this giant piece of wood that they were using as the, the anchor. And he's getting ready to smack this great white in the face as it comes near them. Now, it gets closer and closer. And Brad looks over and he's like, don't do it. Don't do it. You'll just rile it up and it'll come back and you know knock us over. Just leave it. So Mark's like, all right, all right. And this giant great white comes under their raft and they can feel it under the material. Oh. They can feel its body, like push them up. Like it's, it's, it's gross. And essentially Brad's just sitting there feeling it rub against him. He's like, this is so horrifyingly absurd. It's almost comical how bad the situation is. But the most critical fact, again, was that Brad was still trying. Both he and Deb weren't done fighting. They were still thinking and hoping that they could get out of this. And this was the number one reason they survived and the others didn't. So by day three, the hallucinations kick in. And obviously they're caused by you know, exhaustion, dehydration, hypothermia. And Mark and John had exacerbated their condition because they were sipping the seawater. Oh, no. That's the worst thing you can do. Which is, you know, it shuts down your kidneys and dehydrates you, as you probably know. Now, John soon becomes convinced that he needs to get his car keys. He's like, oh, dude, where's my car? And the, the rest of them look over to him and, John, what are you talking about? We're in the middle of the ocean. He's like, no, 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 no. My car's just over there. I'm, I swear I can reach it. And he's convinced that they're just off the coast of Falmouth, Massachusetts. And he'll just be able to basically stroll over there, pick, get his car, 
and come and pick them up. He has this idea that he can come and pick them up. Um, and Brad had hallucinations as well, um, but he was still lucid enough to go, no, 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 no. You're in a dinghy. We're surrounded by sharks. Don't go into the water. You'll die. And they're all just, he's like, okay, okay, yeah, I get it. I understand. Yeah, we're out. We're in water. I understand our situation. My car's not there. Five minutes later, he's like, all right, I'm going to go get my car. And he oh. goes over the edge of the dinghy. Oh, no. And starts swimming away. And they're shouting at him like, you got to come back, come back, come back. And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm just going to get my car. <laughs> just, it's just over there. Relax, chill out. And they all look at him. And then there's just this horrendous scream, like this blood curdling scream. And he disappears under the water. Had the shark been waiting for him? Yeah. Now, they were torn over whether to retrieve him, obviously, when he first went over. But uh, yeah, that well, scream then, 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 now sealed the deal. About an hour later, Mark in the dinghy says, oh, guys, um, I'm just going to the store to get some cigarettes. Do you guys need anything? Oh, no. He's just seen a guy eaten by a shark. And they say, no, Mark, no, you, you can't go to the store. We're in a dinghy in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by great white sharks. We cannot, you cannot go to the store. And he's like, yeah, but okay. Yeah, I get it. I get it. And then he goes over the side about five minutes later. Oh. And as he goes over, he says, I'm just going to the 7-Eleven. It's just down there. I'm just going to get a couple of cigarettes. Again, you guys want anything? All right, suit yourself. And then he's, Whoa, he's just, he's just torn to shreds right in front of them. And their, their dinghy is just like bouncing around in this churn of his body parts going everywhere from oh. multiple sharks coming and tearing him apart. Oh, And this God. Deb was quoted in the, the media saying, obviously, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. It's traumatizing. Like, yeah, you wouldn't even want to hear about that. Sorry. But there's only three of them left now. So Brad, Deb and Meg, they huddle together. But now the cold is penetrating their cause. Uh, and even Brad starts thinking that They've only got hours to live, not days. Now, losing Mark and John was devastating. He said that essentially it opened the door for death to come into the raft mm. and the the focus shifted from living to dying. And it's you really see that domino effect. Like once the first guy went crazy and went over, then it, wasn't, it was like less than an hour before Mark went over as well. And as Brad lay in the raft, he feels the sharks like bumping it you know, ready to do something, trying to get them out. Uh, but he tells himself over and over, and this is kind of the lesson, don't give up. We've seen a couple of ships in the distance. Our luck has got to change soon. Don't give up. Don't give up. And really, they they needed more than luck. They needed a miracle because Meg, who had the laceration, and she's probably the reason the sharks were there, um, she she was in serious danger because she her, her cut was infected. Um, she probably had blood poisoning. And she died that night. She didn't make it, uh, yeah, likely from exhaustion and the infection. Uh, in the morning, Brad and Deb said a prayer over her lifeless body and then released her to the sea and she was taken by the sharks. Now, the craft is full of blood. It's full of pus and filth. And after a couple of hours, uh, Deb says to Brad, look, we've got to turn this thing over. We've got to clean it out. We've got to rinse it out. And Brad's immediate thought is, I don't know if I'll be able to get back into this raft. Like I don't have the, I don't, strength. I don't have the strength. Yeah. But 
he went ahead with the idea anyway because he wanted to keep the camaraderie, like the unity going. He didn't want to disagree with her, which I found strange, but they do it anyway. They they basically, they think there's no sharks around. They can't see any, any of them. They flip the dinghy over and they manage to clean it out. Now, Brad helps Deb back in, but now he can't get back in. He doesn't have the strength like he suspected. And she's just, you know, admonishing herself because she feels like she's condemned him to death by her dumb idea. Why can't she get him in though? She's just too she's weak. She's too weak as well. And she thinks a shark's going to take him in any second. But somehow Brad finds this burst of strength out of nowhere. And I was hoping to find some kind of third man yeah, that's what I'm wondering. story, like someone lifted him out of the water, but there's no mention of that. And he manages to get himself back inside the dinghy. And he's done though after this this final exertion he's done he's he's vomiting he really thinks that he's going to be dead within an hour he's got nothing left and mentally he's ready to check out he's ready to call it the quits but then there's something in the back of his mind that says don't give up and so just that in itself though can be the third man effect in a way well like it's a not, coherence well, it's, that comes in the third man effect is external no this is his own thought his own will and he has this idea. He knows it's not going to work. He knows it's stupid. He know, But just the act of saying it out loud gives him a purpose to move forward. So he says to Deb, we're going to catch a fish. Let's catch a fish. And they're not going to be able to catch a fish. Not a big fish for them to eat. And so he says this, and it gives him this something to hang on to, like something to do. Anyway, a few moments later, they see it. There's a Russian ship coming fast. And they kind of stand up, wave their arms, you know, please, please see us. Because they'd seen ships before, but they're too far away. But this time, the crew of the Russian ship wave back. The ship comes over. Do they over. wave and keep going? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they wave back and keep going. No, they come over and they rescue them. They, they pull them up to the ship, pluck them from the water. And what saved them was the power of all those little steps of what can I do? What can I do? What do I have control of? And this is what uh, Michael communicates, that they they made it because they kept focusing on the few things they could initiate rather than let the despair they felt push them towards resignation. And he says the message for all of us is to take those little steps that might seem insignificant when you feel helpless and just string a few actions together. Before you know it, you've advanced towards your objective. Do you know what? I mean, it, it sounds cliche, but it actually has a lot of merit to it. When you think about it, how you could apply that to your greater life, there's so much in the world that we worry about and we're concerned about, but so much of it we can't control. So if you simply focus on what you can control, it's almost like your brain is distracted by that and doesn't have the time to be concerned about other things. Yeah, that's true, but it's also super cheesy and lame. Well, that's what I said. It's cliche. <laughs> it's it's super, very much cliche, it's but super it's super cheesy. Like, that's the message. Just never give up. It's like, really? You've... You know, you, you, there's a great white shark about to eat you. Well, you know what I was thinking, though? When he describes, you know, feeling like he has, has to say stuff out loud. It's like when you go to Japan or some, you know, some Asian countries, it looks kind of unusual to a Westerner. But Japan's a really great example where if you go to a train station, you'll find that they're pointing. Uh, you know, someone that's working on a train will point and doing what they're doing or if they're, you know, doing instructions. And it's like they're actually giving it like a physicality. Acting it out. Acting it out. And it said that that does that because it improves their performance. It actually causes you to focus on what ex exactly what you're doing. So maybe in a way, him doing those little acts was enough to improve his survival chances. Well, as I skip forward into the other stories in the book, many of them were almost identical to that situation I just shared with you. Um, and I'll link to their full story in a couple of um, 
dramatizations and videos about them in the show notes. But um, Deb died years later. Of a shark bite? No, no. I think she, she got cancer or something, but Brad's still alive today to tell the story. But Deb did describe uh, years after the event that she had this weird sense of unease before they went on that voyage. And it was building up for days before they left. Now, Like a precognition? Well, he doesn't say that, but he just said she had this gut feeling that something was going to go wrong, like something off was about the trip. And a day before they were going to sail, she ended up calling uh, the captain, Mark, and essentially saying, look, I'm out. You know, I can't be part of the crew. I'm really sorry. And he just ripped into her. Like, how dare you do this so late? Like, quite, you know, rightly so, because she would basically ruin their whole trip. Um, And she felt terrible. Like, once she got this lecture, she felt really bad and ended up showing up anyway because she just felt kind of... Her resolve was weakened by his his Mm. speech. Mm. Um, But then she saw some more things that made her realize that the gut feeling was probably correct when she actually got onto the sailboat because she went down into the, you know, the cabin underneath and every surface, every flat surface down there was covered with Heineken bottles. And it was just like packets of crisps everywhere and chips open. And it was just a pig, absolute pigsty. And that was her second kind of, oh, I don't know about this. But she just forced herself to think about the destination. She was going to Florida and she had someone waiting for her. Uh, and this was an interesting direction for his book because I thought maybe he's going to start discussing this uh, external element to these survival stories. Because, yes, there is this uh, willpower involved. There's determination. There's grit. There's forbearance. There's all those good things. But in many cases, there's something else that seems to be looking out for us. Yeah. There's something that it's seems to angel. be guiding people. And of course, yeah, Geiger's second book was on guardian angels. Uh, but he actually believes, Michael uh, Toglas believes that what this is, is the subconscious mind picking up on clues that haven't yet fully formed in our consciousness. Yeah, see, that in itself, I find that to be cliche. Yeah, I was like, like nah, I, I'm No, out. like, I'm a true believer in precognition, uh, you know, telep- telepathy, all that kind of stuff. Like, to me, it suggests that there is a... Um, a hidden psychic ability, an atrophied psychic ability that we have. And that's why we pick up on things. We pick up on these events and that acts as a warning. Well, it just doesn't make sense either. I mean, if she's having these feelings before she's even before she seen the boat, the boat for yeah. weeks before, yeah. how is that some kind of matrix of information that her subconscious is building up? This was described by Ava Hart. So Ava Hart was a seven-year-old girl on the Titanic. Her mother, um, well, she was on the, on the ship with her mother and father, and her mother refused to sleep every night. Like every night she, she would sleep all through the day and she sat up all night waiting and the night that the ship hit the iceberg, she was ready to go. And she got, unfortunately, she didn't get her husband off the boat, but she got her children off the boat because she knew. She knew so She didn't know what it was. Her husband kind of made fun of her because she was staying up all night. She, but how? How is it that a woman would have that knowledge coming through? It's just a subconscious brain. Okay. So you're, you're stepping onto a ship where you're being told that it's unsinkable. <laughs> so I moved beyond that book. It, there looks like some, some good stories in there, but not really mysterious universe content for the rest of it. So I thought about, you know, what's some other stories? Because the one from John Geiger's book on the third man factor that that sticks out, and when we talk about the third fa- man factor, this is what we're talking about, these kinds of things. There's the free climber who was on the side of a mountain and he 
he, as he was making his way up, if he falls from this distance, he's dead. There's some kind of uh, movement of rocks up above and he looks up and he sees basically like a small boulder heading straight for his head. And I can't remember the details of the story, whether he heard a voice or had this feeling of calm come over him, but he swears the boulder stopped in midair, shifted to the side and then continued on down its path. Oh, I don't like recall something that one. Pushed, Something incredible. pushed it out of the way. And the other typical third man effect is when, you know, someone might be drowning in a river. Yeah, the whitewater rafting one. That's uh, yeah. the one I'm thinking well, of. Well, what's that story? So with that story, there was a whitewater rafter who had gone over because they'd hit rapids and the, they'd come to a point where because of the positioning of the rocks and the uh, turbidity of the water and the, just the immense force that was there, they couldn't get back up. They couldn't get above the surface. And just as they're about to pass out, some hand reaches down, like it's a hand. It reaches down, grabs hold of the scruff of their shirt and pulls them, like reefs them out of the water. Now they climb up onto the boulder and they're, oh, oh my God, thank you so much. Looking around, there's no one there. Now the other rafters didn't see anyone else either. There was no one. Yeah, I'm trying to think of another one. There was a guy going on a, a, a canoe or something and he, he, you know, he got stranded. He was nearly drowning. And he just put his feet down, like way out from the beach. And there was a platform there, not made of sand, but it was made of some kind of smooth plastic or something. It felt like plastic. And he was just standing on this platform. And when the rescue boat eventually came and got him, the platform disappeared. And I don't there was remember nothing that there. at all. I've got to reread that book. That's incredible. Because that's even more than the third man effect. Maybe like, it's from another story. Because the third man effect normally is it's yeah, that's to be another a person. Man yeah, <laughs> that's it's, a bad example. Yeah. That's a terrible example. Well, no, that's like more of a supernatural description, but yeah. it does fit under the same umbrella. Well, when Geiger wrote the third man factor, uh, well, after he had published it, he got a, a ton of feedback and people were sharing their own personal stories. And that's a lot when of experience. He wrote the angel effect as a follow-up, uh, which had real kind of paranormal phenomena in it. But uh, obviously, we'd done that back in 2016. I think it was on um, season 15, episode five. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yep. Uh, but I just thought, you know, Geiger's such a fantastic writer. What else has he done? So I found that older paperback-only version of The Chapel of Extreme Experience, I was mentioning at the start of the show, a short history of stroboscopic light and the dream machine. And I'm like, what is the dream machine? This sounds cool. Does it make white noise and release lavender? That, yeah, that's the modern dream <laughs> machine, isn't it? <laughs> lavender. <laughs> what are you talking about? So the scene of this book starts at this gallery. It's Gal Gallery von Barter in Basel in Switzerland. This is in June of 1979. And there's two men making their way through the crowd of these art collectors, you know, smoking cigars and drinking their, Brandy. their, their white wine. And they make their way around the sculptures and they stop in front of one of these art exhibits and they stare at it intently with their eyes closed. And this weird sculpture is tall. It's spinning. This, it's this silver black cylinder pierced with irregular shapes. And there's a light inside it that's spilling this kind of eerie flicker over their eyelids. One of them's a pallid man. He's 65 years old, you know, fierce, intelligent eyes. It's William Burroughs, you know, the famous writer and connoisseur of drug culture. Uh, he was well, into postmodernism, so what do you expect? Well, yeah, Burroughs had travelled from New York for the opening. The second man there, uh, perhaps more conservatively attired, uh, closely cropped white hair, 73 years old, was Dr. Albert Hoffman, who, of oh. course, synthesised LSD in 1938. Now, the artist was also there, tall, handsome man, 63 years old. 
His name was Brian Geisen. Now, this exhibition was called Dream Machines. And there was a report on the event in one of the local papers that said uh, this was not an ordinary art show and what was on display was not conventional work. And the newspaper called these three men dream mechanics. And it's a pretty apt description. So the sculptures were actually flicker machines, like finely calibrated to expose the viewer to these rhythmic flashes. And there was a specific rate that was calculated to match the frequency of the brain, stimulating alpha rhythms, and sometimes bringing on experiences similar to LSD. Now, Burroughs proclaimed famously that anything that can be done chemically can be done in other ways. And Geisen's dream machine was this other way. It was the product of a period of intensive scientific investigation into the borderlands between dreams and waking thought. And it revealed that through this medium of flashing light, it's possible to evoke colors, patterns, simple sensations, but also complex, fully complete hallucinations. Really? Where people are transported to other places and completely displaced in time and space. So do they need to remain in front of this machine to have the effect keep going? Is that how it works? Yes. It, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you, with the drug, it's in your system and being metabolized. That's why the, the trip goes for as long as it does. But Geisen and many other people who used this back in the 1950s uh, claimed that the effects lasted for up to 24 hours. Interesting. Now, uh, Geisen's first experience, this is essentially what kicked this off or what started his curiosity. It was December the 21st, 1958. Uh, he was a resident of the Beat Hotel in Paris, which was basically like a, well, it's not a slum, but squatters. Everyone's squatting right. there, right? Uh, and he was traveling by bus from Paris to this artist's colony in the Mediterranean. You can get a sense of what kind of guy this is, right? <laughs> And he was going to spend Christmas and New Year's holidays with his friends there. And as the bus is passing through this long avenue of trees, Geisen closes his eyes because the setting sun is flashing through the trees as the bus is moving through. And all of a sudden, he's shown this transcendental storm of color vision, he says. It was an overwhelming flood of intensely bright patterns, supernatural colors exploding behind my eyelids, he says. A multidimensional kaleidoscope whirling out through space. I was swept out of time. Now, as the bus left these trees, it just suddenly stops. And he's just left thinking, what the hell was that? What was this vision? What on earth happened to me? Because it really was like a spiritual experience. Mm. Now, he immediately wrote to his friend Burroughs. They were very close friends. And Burroughs lived in the same, you know, hotel in Paris. And they collaborated as artists. Uh, Burroughs replied to him saying, We must storm the citadels of enlightenment. The means are at hand. And the means would be to develop this machine to harness the potential of this flickering light. A device that would make these experiences as easy as flicking a switch, the dream machine. So it's quite a, an interesting goal to achieve the effects of what are often very dangerous substances with just some device, like you just turn it on. So he goes into the the history of the flicker effect. And this goes back quite a way. Like there's a story of uh, Catherine de' Medici uh, who apparently had Nostradamus sitting on top of a tower and Nostradamus would 
stare at the sun with his eyes closed and then grab his hand and flick his fingers in front of his face. And then she would ask him questions and he would get visions that would help her, you know, with her political machinations, basically. And he would tell her that these were like instructions from a higher power. Maybe that's how Nostradamus got all his visions. Yeah, you've got to wonder, don't you? Staring at the sun and flicking his fingers over his eyes. Uh, And there's also a suggestion that St. Paul, you know, Saul of uh, Tarsus, the most important convert to Christianity, you know, the guy who was walking along the road and then had this vision of light. It says in the Bible, a light from heaven flashed around him. So Geisen actually suggests maybe he had one of these experiences. Maybe he was on a donkey cart or something. The sun was shining through the trees Mm. and he had some kind of insane experience. This is what came up a lot today when I was looking at these DMT reports is that people describe like spiritual experiences. A lot of like, there's a lot of wankery in there, but a lot of people like, oh, I was cradled by God or I met an entity that I believed was God. So you can see the, the parallels here. Well, Geisen says one of the first things you perceive with this device is crosses. Really? The first I wonder why. Now, there was an initial investigations in the early 19th century, but things really kicked off with this Dr. Gray Walter. Uh, in 1946, he introduced the electronic stroboscope. So it was a, a device that could do these rapid flashes uh, you know, electronically at you. At a certain frequency, I'm assuming. Well, eventually that was developed and he uh, eventually worked with brain rhythms and he realized that this photic stimulation would modulate the brain rhythm. So real kind of breakthrough at the time. And he stated it will temporarily create a different sort of brain. And, you know, obviously the understanding of those brain waves was rudimentary back then. Yes. But now we understand that as putting you into, you know, alpha and theta and different kind of altered states of consciousness. And he discovered that the stroboscopic light appeared to break down the physiological barriers between different regions of the brain. He said flicker proved to be a key to many doors. Now, I'm going to explain to you how this eventually led to remote viewing at Stanford. Really? With Russell Targ and Hal Puthoff. This is all connected. So with this guy's experiments, he found some really weird outliers. Walter found in his laboratory trials that this bright light, flickering uh, flickering light on subjects, in about 3 or 4% of the people that used it, um, they started to see symptoms that previously would be diagnosed as epilepsy, mm-hmm. uh, like severe transient disturbances of consciousness, strange feelings, faintness, swimming of the head. But in some cases, the subjects experienced the petite mal seizure or the absence seizure. So what this is, is a brief, pretty much barely noticeable trance, a complete loss of consciousness where the subject, like he would have them in front of this machine and they would just be staring with their mouth open completely non-responsive, like eyes staring at this thing. You can ask them questions. You can tap them on the shoulder. They're not there. They won't respond at all. Yeah. And when they return from this state, and it's often momentarily, it's like 20 seconds, if that, they have no idea where they've been. Like they have no concept that they weren't responsive, that they actually entered this trance. Are they able to recall seeing anything or that it's just like a complete void to them? Sometimes, yes. So in a 1948 letter to Walter uh, Reginald Bickford, this British researcher, 
he was working at the Mayo Clinic, he was doing similar research and he wrote to Walter and said, oh, we've got some uh, very intriguing manifestations of phenomena. He saw that one of one of the participants, there was this boy who was eight years old, uh, he had noticed that there were, he, this kid had a habit where he would wave his hand in front of his eyes whenever he saw a bright light if he was exposed to strong sunshine. And essentially, they figured out that this kid was putting himself into one of those seizures because he was bored or something. Oh, So there must be some appeal to it. Well, there has to be. It's an altered state of consciousness. And this kid was just doing it when he was bored, putting himself in an altered state. But for most of Walter's subjects, most of the experiences were transcendent beauty. They would see beautiful colors, incredible shapes, kaleidoscope of colors. Very much like what you hear from mushroom experiences, LSD, yes, and definitely. I'm sure you'll you'll be covering a lot of that in the plastic segment. Oh, it's it's almost like it's obligatory to the experience. It's like it's it's something that happens to every single person. They see these colors, geometric shapes. It's just so typical. In 1953, Walter publishes this book called The Living Brain. And there was a chapter entitled The Revelation by Flickr, where he describes all these experiments he did. And some individuals who were exposed to these lights at certain frequencies saw more than just colors. Some people saw explosions, strange wheels. Uh, and Walter ultimately suggested that the results were comparable to hallucinogenic drugs. Uh, but when he did the experiments, of epileptic patients and brain-injured subjects, there were some really strange experiences. Like in one case, a brain-injured patient, when they were exposed to these flashing lights, started to see an old crone dressed in rags who would clatter about in a kitchen cooking something for them. And this person said, they just, this crone just had the most ungodly foul stench like it's just there boiling something on the kitchen stove, just stinking up the place. So you're not only seeing something, you're not only having a vision, you're actually smelling yeah. something. And then Walter continued with his experiments and he discovered that these full-on hallucinations, they started to be experienced by normal subjects, people that didn't have uh, epilepsy or brain injuries. And he realized that they were so dynamic. They were so out there and strange. They went beyond a lot of what he had read in medical case histories across the board. Uh, in one instance, an entirely normal and technically sophisticated individual reported seeing a procession of little men with tiny little hats pulled down over their eyes walking across the field. Yeah, I'm not surprised. <laughs> the hallucinations described by some subjects were of a character so compelling that one subject was able to sketch it weeks later. Like it was a real experience. He said, in highly organized hallucinations, you see small animals, reptiles, loosely draped human figures, miniature brightly colored objects like Chinese lanterns, reduplicated figures, processions of little creatures, uh, often kind of wandering across the view or climbing up some imaginary ladder. He said, in some subjects, the, uh, there's a specific frequency of flicker that could evoke vivid memories of past experiences. And As in like past life memories or well, just of their own past? Eventually, some people started seeing what seemed like a, a time period before their own. Mm -hmm. um, Walter even found time itself could become lost or disturbed. Like one 
patient or one uh, participant said that they felt like they were pushed sideways in time by this light flickering device. I don't know why it is, but this kind of stuff comes up uh, so often in reports of epilepsy, and there seems to be this element of you know, of metaphysical phenomena that appears in epileptic patients. But it's really, I don't know why, it's really frowned upon. It really gets you know a bad rap. Whenever you try to discuss it in certain circles, it's completely dismissed. It's almost like it's offensive to some people. Epilepsy has long been associated in history with a holy spiritual experience. Yes. And seers and things like that. Mm. Uh, he has a reference from someone quoting... I can't remember who it was, some prominent figure in history who has said that, basically, to paraphrase, the normies don't know us, what us epileptics experience, and if they did, they would want to be one of us, yeah. <laughs> essentially, something like that. Now, I want to move on to John R. Smithies. Uh, he was the first to report that this stroboscopic light not only stimulated these hallucinations, but also enhanced the effect of mind-altering drugs. Mm-hmm. So this guy, really interesting character, English scientist. Uh, he had the equivalent of an MD and PhD in neuroanatomy from Cambridge, studied philosophy as well, anthropology at the University of British Columbia, wrote poetry, like incredibly talented guy. And he had all these theories that arise from his mescaline research. Now, he questioned the assumption that physical objects are real and that hallucinations are not, observing that no hard and fast line can be drawn between them. Now, I was happy I saw that today because I knew you were going to be talking about DMT in the plus extension. And I find myself agreeing with this very intelligent Englishman. He further suggested that rather than the hallucinations being simply constructions of a disordered brain, they may instead represent a level of reality that is normally hidden from us. And that's really been that's the, exactly what it is. the line we've taken from our research over the years. The idea that this is just the brain producing some kind of hallucination, I hate the word hallucination, that this is some kind of confabulation. Well, no, it's it's we shouldn't be you know so dismissive of hallucination because people do have hallucinations, but these are different. Like these particular reports, they're written off as being hallucinations, but with a lot of hallucinations, they are. Um, it's it's not trippy, but they are kind of dissociative. Uh, people are you know struggling to even know their own ego. They are, have difficulty. You know, they're disoriented with them. With a lot of these particular experiences from DMT, at least. People uh, seemingly go quite consciously into a very real space. Right. That's the difference. Well, Smithies and his colleague Humphrey Osmond, they developed the first hypothesis of the biological basis of schizophrenia. So they did this while they were at uh, the St. George's Hospital of London on staff. And Smithies observed that mescaline is a close chemical relative to adrenaline. And his idea was that it's possible there's a fault in adrenaline metabolism for some people and the brain might produce mescaline-like compounds naturally for some people. Okay. Uh, so it was a really uh, interesting idea. And more obviously more research has been done on this, including adrenochrome and mm-hmm. things like that. But these guys started that kind of thinking. Eventually, his colleague Osmond was appointed clinical director of the Saskatchewan Hospital uh, in Canada, which is a mental hospital, and he was soon joined by Smithies, and they teamed up with Dr. Abram Hoffer. Now, they were given free reign to investigate alternative treatment methods, and that free reign involved just giving the patients 
a whole heap of it, right? Shitloads of <laughs> yeah. mescaline and taking it themselves. And it's it's interesting Besides. that when you look at the history of MK Ultra, these Canadian operations played a huge part in those early periods. And there, you know, it's there's so many connections with these MK Ultra experiments and these early um, free reign experiments these guys were doing. But it was Hoffa, Osmond, and Smithies who wrote an essay on schizophrenia, who actually coined the term hallucinogen. It actually came oh, from them. Okay. Now, in 1953, uh, this paper they published, Schizophrenia: A New Approach. Aldous Huxley read it in the paper in the like the Hilbert Journal or whatever it was published, and he wrote a letter to Smithies saying how impressed he was with their work. And he also said, like at the end of the letter, you know, maybe if you're ever in town. You might know someone who can get me some pure mescaline. <laughs> so, just if you happen to be around. A short time later, they basically traveled to Los Angeles, where Huxley was based, and stayed with uh, him and his wife, and yet yeah, gave them four tenths of a gram of mescaline. And right after that, well, based on his experience, Huxley wrote The Doors of Perception in 1954 and then Heaven and Hell, the sequel, uh, two years later, all based on those experiences. So, it was because of these guys that we have the Aldous Huxley that we know. Now, Smithies continued the research, uh, his research at the University of British Columbia in 1954. He produced the first study to describe the effects evoked when volunteers were exposed to a drug in conjunction with this strobing light. Mm -hmm. So what he gave them was this stuff called TMA, which is trimethoxyamphetamine. And apparently it doesn't do that much. It just makes you feel a little bit drunk, a little bit, you know, hyper- uh, but anyway, once the subject started to receive the light, it changed everything. So one subject was this 22-year-old kid. He was given the TMA. And he was basically fine. He was a little bit inebriated. But as soon as they turned on the str- stroboscope, two hours after he'd taken the drug, he starts seeing Turkish temples, like designs from Turkish temples all around him. Interesting. He starts seeing green snow falling in the room. He sees gold and silver rain. He sees fireworks. And finally, he sees Queen Elizabeth and the Queen Mum appearing to him bathed in royal purple. <laughs> so is he seeing this with his eyes closed? Are these visions that are popping up with his eyes closed because of the machine? Or yeah. Is he, okay. Yeah, you have to have your eyes closed. Mm-hmm. But many people are describing that they're, they've transported somewhere else. They're, yeah. they're seeing it Not as if their, their eyes. eyes are wide open. Mm. Uh and he, he describes seeing colours he'd never seen before in his real life, That's which exactly is exactly what's described in DMT. Time and time again in other experiences, and especially in near-death experiences as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, he eventually found himself in the midst of a scene with large cat-like humanoids with la- enormous green fangs. But he said they were friendly. They just wanted to hang out, almost like they were waiting for him. A second subject was a 22-year-old female experienced uh, structured hallucinations uh, when the stroboscope began to flash. This was over an hour after taking the drug. When her eyes closed, she immediately saw a woman walking down New York's Fifth Avenue with a poodle. And one of the scientists said, oh, um, is it in two dimensions or three dimensions? She says, neither. It's in six dimensions. How can it be in six dimensions? Well, 
Often you hear people that have near-death experiences describe this. They say, I could perceive everything behind me. I could perceive a 360 oh, yes. view. Mm. I, had, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I could see everything going on all at once. That's that, what she went through. That phrase as well just so frequently comes up in these sorts of experiences that I, I don't know how to explain it. It's because we don't have any reference in this reality. Yeah, that's you, right. You go into this other space and it's just completely different. When the flicker was turned off, the hallucination stopped though and she was totally fine, they flick it back on and she sees this three-dimensional quantum pie graph. <laughs> I don't know what it was. What is a quantum pie graph? Just like imagine a pie graph on crime statistics, but quantum. <laughs> and they ask her to... So it's sparkly, is that what it is? They ask her to get closer to it. She claims that she can go into the pie graph and become a part of one of the sections of the pie graph. What for? So if it's like, like say it's a pie graph on birth rates and um, economic prosperity, right? You can go, zoom in to one of the chunks. And then she said when she zoomed in, she would become part of this elaborate scene that would be all around her explaining that section of the pie graph. What a weird kind of experience. Like It's like virtual reality. It's like, it's like something... Yes, Facebook or yeah, Meta's reality. Something Meta's trying to invent where you, you you know you put a headset on and you go into this other world. Uh eventually sh- uh, there was another case actually where the flicker elicited a perfect image of an oriental bridge like a Japanese garden, this bridge going over a stream in this beautiful garden. Uh, a third subject was a 23-year-old medical student who saw men dressed in white robes standing at the the top of a spiral staircase looking down at him almost as if inviting him to climb it, climb it mm-hmm. and, and meet them. Yeah. Uh, another person just saw two eyes <laughs> walking across the room that weren't attached to anyone, just two eyes, just do, 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 just, you know, wandering across. And then, of course, there's the story of uh, Allen Ginsberg, who took LSD for the first time uh, in 1959. Now, Burroughs was there and Burroughs said, oh, you know, while you're having LSD, for the first time in your life, why don't we use the stroboscope as well? Because I've heard, you know, people see beautiful Japanese gardens and amazing quantum pie graphs. And so Ginsburg's like, all right, yeah, I'll take the LSD and put the light thing on, whatever. So this is where he said he was having an inner orgasm, but then he started to perceive the matrix of the interconnected electricity of the earth and believe that he was going to merge with it and become Lawnmower Man. And as I described at the start of the show, he started to leave his body. He's like, turn it off, turn it off. He starts to leave his body and feels his consciousness being sucked into the PowerPoint in the wall in the lab. It's insanity. Now, yeah, he said he felt caught in a web. Um, this, this spider was God or the devil. He wasn't sure which. But he wrote this poem called Lysergic Acid where he described it as a multi-million-eyed monster. And it's an important point at this point, this section in the book, that a lot of these experiences are terrifying. They are terrifying. And they're not all spiritual and blah, blah, blah. A lot of them are really, really dark and scary. So Burroughs witnesses this and he gets word to his friend back in Paris, Brian Geisen. And he's like, this is exactly what you described when you were on the bus and you went past those trees, you know, you had a similar experience to this guy Ginsburg. And so 
he basically sent him a copy of Walter's book, The Living Brain. And when Geisen read it, he said, finally, I've got an explanation for what I went through on the bus, what happened to me. Once he understood the scientific explanation, he was determined to find a way to me- mechanically reproduce this effect. Now, he discussed it with a friend, Ian Somerville, this mathematics student at Cambridge University. And this guy got to work straight away. And on February the 15th, 1960, the dream machine was born. And this uh, Cambridge math- mathematician, he basically, when he first turned it on, he saw all these colors, uh, but when he went to turn it off, he looked down and he was floating above planet Earth. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. So, Geisen, Brian Geisen, the guy that essentially came up with this idea, was born in England in 1916. Uh, incredible yeah, genius, basically. He was given a Fulbright uh, fellowship, uh, full scholarship. Um, but he had this artist temperament that wasn't really suited to academia. So he became an artist. He became a writer, uh, lived in New York, spent years in Tangier, uh, but eventually settled in that squatting house in Paris uh, and became friends with all these artists and burrows and, uh, you know, Peter, Peter Olofsky and all these poets, right? And basically what they would do, they said they were artists, but they would just sit in their, in their squatter's house and smoke hashish. And... It's interesting if you read his diaries on the time they spent in this apartment, sometimes they would have bizarre shared hallucinations. Like he wrote a letter to Burroughs in 1959 and he said, look, I've been making these incredible discoveries, but what is happening now is that I literally turn into someone else. He says, not a human, but a creature, a man-like creature. He says he wears some sort of green uniform. The face is full of black boiling fuzz and what most people would call evil. Well, he's turning into him. He's turning into him. And when he says evil, he says, oh, silly word that. I've been seeing him for some time in the mirror. This is nothing, of course. But when other people start seeing him without being briefed or influenced in any way, then something's really there. It sounds like spirit possession. Yeah, like he's looking in the mirror. And when he says fuzz, does that mean hair? Is he seeing like a black, hairy Bigfoot when he looks in the mirror? I think <laughs> in that's a green what he's uniform. In a green uniform. <laughs> I think this is special ops green beret Bigfoot. And this- so other people in this, this house are seeing this entity as well. Yeah. They're all seeing it. <laughs> They're seeing like in the glimpse, you know, at a glimpse in the corner of their eye. While under the influence of drugs or just in general? But. Bo- well, under hashish. Yeah, okay. So, Bar- but may- I don't know if the other people seeing it are also on the hashish, probably. Now, Burroughs eventually wrote that this was an alien eruption that inspired their literature and inspired their art. And these guys went on to influence you know, thinking in the 1960s and 70s that yeah. followed, the very influential people. They've turned into something. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think what was influencing them behind the scenes that clearly they were aware of. But just to say that it's evil, but what a silly word. I mean, how... Yeah, why be so dismissive of such a serious word like that? How irresponsible. Uh, But anyway, when this dream machine was basically constructed, Geisen wanted to stimulate this experience, but also make it instructive to the viewer. And this is where his vision of the future came in. Like many of the psychedelic thinkers of this time, he wanted to change the world. He really saw this future of human beings breaking down barriers. 
going beyond the limits of the program uh, and essentially uncovering the incalculable, like just this really kind of highbrow but very naive vision mm. of the future based on the drugs they're taking. But in this case, it wasn't drugs. It was just light flashing into their eyes. He started to have these weird 360-degree visions, faces, figures, uh, images from the past. One of the weird full-on hallucinations he had just with this light device was he's swimming through this ocean. Suddenly, he's just swimming, and he looks down, and he sees these huge mollusks below him. And one of them opens its mouth, and out of it swims this human diver wearing a, a Da Vinci helmet, he says. And this was clear as day, like a Leonardo Da Vinci diving helmet. Clear as day, perfect vision, no drugs at all, just this light shining into his eyes. So that's why years ago when we heard about the Lucia light device, we heard similar stories. Yeah. We thought, yeah, where do we get this? Oh, it's 20 grand. <laughs> well, they had one. They had one in Sydney at, at some point, And I believe that by the time we'd found the provider that they had moved the machine, I'm sure it moved to Byron Bay. So maybe there's still one around when Byron Bay isn't that far from us anymore, Ben. So we should go and, and check it out. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's still there. Mm. Well, he said this is going to bring about a change in human consciousness. It's going to throw back the limits of the visible world. And there's this early idea of transhumanism boiling up here as well, because he said ape became man, so it must be possible to become something more than man. It really is this transhumanist idea brewing already. So he makes these connections with the art world. Uh, he starts... You found it, the Lucia light device. Sorry, I just Mark found it. Mark three. I will put this into the show notes so you can check it out for yourself. There actually is a link to buy a light. Let's see how much it is at the moment. Uh, okay, so the... Oh, you can get a home portal now. So it's a mini one. So the mini one, let me just Come see how, how much, much the mini one is. Does it uh, say, look, if it says get quote, the then you know it's thousands and thousands. That there's a lot of things I've got to click through and it's telling you all the wonderful details about, oh my God, it's $9,100. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Wait, it's a lamp. It's a fancy lamp. Like this. So there's a picture of a woman that's lying underneath this lamp and she's holding what looks like a Nintendo Switch controller. So I don't know what that does. Well, this one that they built in the early 1960s, it was literally a turntable with a cardboard cylinder put on top with right. shapes Very cut into the side. And then a 100-watt light bulb lowered into the middle. That was it. That's the whole invention. By the way, it's not only $9,100. It also has a almost $1,200 shipping fee. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, I, I don't think that's going to happen. That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. Why is but it $1,200 to ship a lamp? I don't know. It just says here. What does it say? It says um, international shipping from Austria, customs, insurance, and fees is $1,125. Oh, we don't want your lamp to break now, do we? <laughs> so I must say, keep going because I'm intrigued. Let's have a look at the practitioner system. Okay, keep going. Let's see how much that works. So, uh, what's his name? Geisen, he makes these connections with the art world because he's already got those connections. Eventually, a fashion designer is blown away by it. It starts to get exhibited on catwalks and in fashion shows and parties in the scene. He patents the device in July of 1961. It starts to explode in popularity, but mainly amongst the drug-taking art scene. Right. 
eventually it's enhancing the experience. The Rolling Stones just turn up at his house one day <laughs> asking about this device. The Beatles get interested. Warhol loves it. Popularity is exploding with this thing. And Geisen starts to envision this, this dream machine in every suburban home. And he's convinced it's going to replace the television set, but broadcast inner programming. Visions for everyone with the flick of a switch. Eventually, it gets so popular, Philips Corporation wants to mass manufacture it, market it, and just make millions of dollars off this device. So they dispatch a team of executives to Paris to go and meet Geisen. Now, Geisen has this, this is it. He's thinking, this is it. I am days away from signing a contract and striking it rich. This is going to change the world. I'm going to be remembered as one of the greatest inventors of all time. So what happened? On the way to the pitch, the Phillips um, executive, he slips on a piece of dog shit on the sidewalk. Because it's Paris. Anyone ever been to Paris? There's shit everywhere. It's <laughs> dog shit everywhere. <laughs> everywhere in France. It's just all over the sidewalk. French. But, and because this Phillips executive slipped on a large dog turd before the meeting. Geisen said he was in a, such a foul mood. He didn't want he didn't want anything to do with it. He didn't want anything to do with this stupid light device. He was just so annoyed at being in Paris and seeing all the dog turds everywhere that they Phillips just basically flew home. And that was the end of the deal. Uh he eventually teamed up with this uh uh enterprising New York woman named Leela Hadley who when she used the device, she saw scenes of a Georgia house in the in the past with like this woman coming at her and this almost like a past life experience. What? There's a machine in Coolangatta. Where's mach- that? That's pretty close. Less than two hours away. We have to go. <laughs> because when I looked at the practitioner machine, that is a inquire for more details. So I'm assuming that, that you're right. It must be up in the 20,000 price range. Uh, but yeah, there is one that we can go to, Ben, which is in Coolangatta, which is, I think, about two hours drive away from right. where we are. Yeah, that sounds good. Uh, you can go first, though, like when we did the past life regression. Yeah, thanks for that. I'll, rec- I'll record you. Well, after <laughs> the experiences you're describing, I'm not so sure that... Oh, they- oh, look at this! We can do it together. Oh, you can do a <laughs> dual section. You put your heads, the top of your heads together, and they fire a light into your face. What if uh, the little people appear... And they want to kill me for all the times I've said we should just kick their faces off. <laughs> what if like an I'm, army... Sorry, of, I, I'm not going to defend you. I can't help you. An army of little elves turn up and they want to murder me. Yeah, but I'm not going to help And you. then I, I, I die suddenly. I'm another died suddenly case. This is intriguing though, because as part of their, their warning, uh, maybe someone would die suddenly from this, because it says that if you're suffering from a psychotic condition or a psychological condition... We recommend that you do not use this machine. Yeah, so earlier in the research, that's a good point, in the 1940s with um, that early researcher, he stated that if they did have some kind of brain injury, if there was some kind of mental problem, they would mm. have bad, very bad experiences. Yeah, right. Like so the- very uncomfortable, it would not be good at all. Right. Um, eventually, this, this agent of his, Leela Hadley, who knows all the New York circles, she eventually books a meeting with Columbia Records, Pocket Books, and Random House, and they're all in this big meeting room. And essentially, the director of Columbia, Alvin Goldstein, he's figuring out 
how to get this dream machine to work because all of them tried it and they were just blown away. Um, and it's interesting because in this meeting, apparently Geisen started to share with them, and this meeting was in like 1963 or something, he starts to share with them this vision he had from the light device, from the dream machine. And he says to them this, he, he tells them that in the future, records will be played without needles and that instead an electronic eye will scan the record disc. Oh. So he described CD. the CD yeah. back in the early 1960s from using this device. And of course, they just thought he was mad. They thought he was crazy. But they were very interested and they went away trying to think of how they could market this, how they can make products. But it all came to naught. No one followed through. And the device really just became connected with the drug scene. Nobody could figure out how to market it. Nobody could figure out how to get past the potential that people would have epileptic seizures from using it and whether they would be sued. Uh, but it's interesting, this connection to remote viewing, because in 1968, that initial researcher, uh, Dr. Walter, he speculated that this device would be able to detect people with psi or what he called paranormal functioning, people How with so? psychic abilities. So he noticed with um, some of the phenomena people were, were reporting, if they had some kind of natural psychic tendencies, they would have greater experiences with this device. So he said it was kind of like a detection machine, even when they didn't realize they had these abilities. Yes. Walter's proposal was taken up by Russell Targ and Harold Pudoff, who were, at, of course, at Stanford Research Institute uh, in the mid-1970s. They did this experiment where they had one subject who was a sender. Uh, it was essentially in a room exposed to stroboscopic light at intervals of 16 flashes per second. And meanwhile, they had another subject who was in a separate room, acoustically shielded, electronically shielded, with no light in there, but they were hooked up to an EEG. Now, their role was to signal to the researchers when the person in the room with the light, who they can't see and they have no idea what's going on, they have to signal when they feel that that person is exposed to the flashing light. Now, the results were really interesting because the receiver had to push a button when they detected the flashing in the other room. But when they pressed the button, it was just chance. Like it was just, the yep. odds were just chance that they would be correct. It wasn't uh, statistically significant at all. But remember, they were hooked up to an EEG. When the person in the other room was exposed to the stroboscopic light, the receiver in an entirely different unconnected room, they registered that light on the EEG. Oh. Even if they didn't press the button. So even if they weren't consciously aware of it. Their brain was picking up on it. Their brain, their consciousness was picking up what was happening to the other person that they'd previously been told was their connection, that they had to be connected with, that they had to receive information with. And I think that's a really, that's a really fascinating idea, this idea that we're picking up things psychically. All the time but we might not be conscious of them. Yeah. And this goes back to the story of the, uh, the, the woman that survived that horrible uh, capsizing of the sailboat where she had this gut feeling. And the author said, well, it's like the subconscious mind uh, gathering this information. And then his idea was that it's not psychic. But, you know, Targ and Putoff showed that, 
Well, it is your subconscious mind receiving this information, but the information is psychic. It's psychically coming through. So their results uh, showed this channel, this non-cognitive awareness of remote happenings, and they published this in the journal Nature. And they eventually proposed that stroboscopic light and EEG could be used to screen for psychic ability in the general population. But then, of course, the uh, three-letter agencies came in. Yeah, of course they did. And the rest is history. And that's how we got remote viewing and everything else they were doing. Now, in the end, Geisen was convinced that his device, his dream machine, never hit mass market because it was oppressed. He said there was a conspiracy against him and it was all organized by big television. Big television? Big television was scared that a spinning lamp was going to take over the industry <laughs> and they wanted to shut him down. I'm not so sure that big television would care about something like that. I, I would be more inclined to believe that three-letter agencies would want to suppress this because it might grant people access to knowledge that they wouldn't otherwise have. Oh, maybe that's another angle to this. But Geisen, towards the end of his life, said it was suppression and it wasn't an accident. He said, after all, it was a machine that for the price of a light bulb leads you drugless into the core of your being and bridges the abyss between sleep and wakefulness, consciousness and unconscious life. He died in Paris in July of 1986, and his ideas followed him in an interesting way, uh, in a notorious way, because in 1994, remember, Kurt Cobain committed suicide. Mm -hmm. uh, and after he died, there was an article that was published in High Times magazine and in Q magazine and New Musical Express that Kurt Cobain killed himself because he had one of these dream machines and what? used it for 72 hours straight. Okay, well, that's a stupid thing to do. But I don't know if you could say that that's why he killed himself. There's a whole heap of factors as to why people kill themselves. It was totally debunked. Like yeah. he, didn't, he, didn't, he probably didn't even own one of them. But that's all the machine became. It became this kind of art piece that rich people would have in their room at I parties see, to yeah. show off I could, to people. I could see the appeal because it may actually do something, right? It might actually may not be as extreme as some of the stories we've described. And in fact, it may only affect a small percentage of the population. But obviously those people are going to be vocal about their experience. And, and it got really corrupted by the modern art scene as well. I think a few years later, there was an artist in, in the UK who basically built one of these machines, but the cutouts were images of his naked girlfriend <laughs> interspaced with tampons. Like he put tampons oh, inside it. What is it with art? How it always ends up being filthy and revolting. And you just stare at it and there'd just be like spinning tampon visions. He ended up getting raided by the, by Scotland Yard. <laughs> and that was back when the UK was based. Yeah, like, right. Yep. <laughs> now Did they nothing, go there, find a machine, just had like the spinning wheel, it was just dicks. To, well, today he would just be celebrated. Yeah, today it would just be suction dildos and you just stand in front of it and they just slap you on the way through. <laughs> bang, 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 bang. And that's your vision. And you'd win like some kind of art prize for it. But no, back in the early 90s, he got raided by Scotland Yard. He got taken away and questioned and they confiscated his artwork. Because of the art? Or is there yeah, other Yeah, because it was gross and disgusting. 
Yeah, it's a very different world today. Although I did notice, I looked that, and I'll put this in the show notes, there's actually a service called Findalight that's connected to Lucia, and there are locations all across the US. I'll put this in the show notes. I'm so glad you found that today. Yeah, it's all across the US. Like, uh, it's, uh, there's plenty, and I think it's quite reasonable. It's not like a $25,000 machine. It's uh, actually quite reasonable prices. That's your at. mission, Barnacles, Barnacles and Plus subscribers, is to find your local uh, lamp connoisseur yep. or lamp aficionado. Yep, you can go to stores like like Current Ritual, uh, which is located, I believe, in Glenwood Springs in Colorado. Or you could go to Lucia Light Bliss, which is uh, also in... I'm not exactly sure where that one is. Uh, there's plenty in Arizona. Of course, yep. there's plenty in bloody Arizona. <laughs> Starlight Healing in Austin, Texas. Uh, there's float centers. It's actually, yeah, if you get a chance, uh, go and check one of these things out and email us in with your experience. I really want to yeah. know about it. From what Anthony Peake said, you just take one look at it and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sounds about right. You know what's weird though? I was looking up, I didn't have it in my show notes here. I don't have it. In, it's on my iPad, but I, I, I Googled this guy's name, Geisen, and there's actually an exhibit in London right now by this artist who has recreated everything he did. Um, well, it's like I'll, a retrospective. Well, it's just the same thing. It's the dream machine spinning around in this piece and she's got her artwork, artwork all around and you just go in there and close your eyes and stare at it. Mm. It's exactly what Geisen did back in the 60s. So I'll link to that as well. It's interesting to see that because it's like just it's happening right now. Like if you're li- listening in the UK, go. you can probably go and check it out uh, today. So check the show notes for that one. I think That's- I want to go to Light Shamans of Maryland. That's where I'm heading. It just sounds right. I don't know why, but light shamans, it sounds right. I want to go to one where you can smell the store as soon as you get onto the street. Like you can just smell. A, a subtle hint of sage and pot. You can smell, yeah, you can smell incense. incense <laughs> and just a tinge of low IQ <laughs> on the air. And just a taste of crazy in the air. Yeah. You can taste it a little bit. They're the best uh, practitioners. That's Chapel of Extreme Experience by John Geiger. He also wrote The Angel Effect and The Third Man Factor, which I'll link to in the show notes at mysteriousuniverse.org. And don't forget to check out Extreme Survival Lessons from Those Who Have Triumphed Against All Odds. If you want more stories of people getting eaten by sharks, that's a wrap for this free edition of MU. Thank you so much for listening huge stuff coming up in our plus extension love the dmt realm very wary of the machine elves don't bring them near me not interested in them but you've got these new experiences over 300 we're going into 300 dmt cases i I went through 300 dmt cases but i picked out what i felt were the uh, the most extreme the most unusual i mean we're talking about self-dribbling jeweled basketballs that grant access (laughs) to portals and other dimensions grays that show up that you know insert probes into people so that they can go and collect information you know all this wild insane stuff all connected to the use of dmt and not just through inhalation, which is what that article is. It's also through intramuscular injections and uh, consumption and it's it's wild, wild stuff. What you need to do, DMT plus the Lucia oh, light device. I reckon Pete, you'd have a stroke. Like, it, I reckon it, oh! we can get you some DMT from Caloundra before we go and use the Lucia light device. We can do this. We'll time it like right before you go under. Oh no! Just, just melatonin. Just take it because melatonin 
you know, it metabolizes to DMT. Does it? Yeah. How much do you have to take? Like I, a box? I don't know, but I, I don't mind. I'll give it a try. <laughs> All right. That's the plan. Coming up in the next episode, Aaron's dead. Coming in 2023, Died Suddenly, featuring Aaron Wright. <laughs> on the new solo edition of Mysterious Universe. Make sure you check out Myster- <laughs> mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Sign up today. You get access to the big extensions we do every single Friday and you get an exclusive show every single Tuesday as well. You're getting more than double the content when you sign up for plus. You also get a higher bitrate version of the show on plus, so a better sounding show. You also get a totally ad-free version of the podcast when you're on plus. All the articles on the website are unlocked for you as well and if you sign up for mu max you get access to our entire back catalog a good time to buy because our christmas break is coming up soon we've got our last week next week before we take a break sign up for plus today mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus that's a wrap for this free edition of the show thanks for listening if you're on plus stick around for the great stuff after the break for everyone else we'll see you next week Plus extension, great to have you with us. Thanks for sending me the link to the LaCia Light Experience.com. There must be